Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Potty in Washington. Today is Thursday, March 9th. And here are some of the stories we're covering. Nigeria's Elections Commission rescheduled Saturday's governorship elections as appeals court rules on one challenge to the conduct of the February 25 presidential election. We have motion to vary the order. Have we withdrawn that motion? It means that that earlier order granted by the court Mass arrests and a wave of racial violence sweep Tunisia after the president's comments on migrants. Women NGO leaders champion civil rights in Zambia. Many citizens in eastern Congo criticize the deployment of East Africa community troops to the region. Today, March 9th, is World Kidney Day as the WHO says kidney disease cases are increasing globally. South Sudan journalists speak of a hostile media environment in their country. If you have national security officials in the printing press, whereby they go through the stories and decide that this story should be out, this one should go, and so on, then definitely people are not even uh, free to write. And a Malawi court allows Rastafarian kids to fight for their rights. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A three-member panel of the Nigerian Court of Appeal ruled that the Independent National Electoral Commission, also known as INEC, can reconfigure the bimodal voter accreditation system, also known as BVAS, used in the February 25 presidential election. However, the court also ruled that INEC must allow the opposition People's Democratic Party of Atiku Abubakar and the Labour Party of Peter Obi to conduct a digital forensic of all materials used in the vote. As a result, of Wednesday's court ruling, INEC announced late Wednesday that it was rescheduling this Saturday's governorship and state assembly elections to March 18. In a statement, the commission says campaigning will continue until midnight Thursday, March 16. Sam Mark Uzikume, one of the lawyers for Atiku Abubakar, tells me the PDP is pleased with Wednesday's court decision. Today's proceedings were in favor of Atiku and PDP. What happened is that on the 1st of March, Atiku and PDP had asked the Court of Appeal, which is sitting at the Election Petition Tribunal, through a motion party that the court should allow Atiku and PDP have unhindered access to INEC portals, including INEC rivers as the bimodal verification equipment, also to have access to the cloud and to the IRF and to the back up an end-to-end electronic storage of the voting that was carried out on the 25th of February 2023. However, INEC had gone forward with a motion asking the court to vary that order on the ground that granted the order will expose voters and their names will be known. We opposed that application strenuously on the ground that under Section 122 of the Electoral Act, the secrecy of voters is only said to happen at the polling unit, not after the polls have been conducted and results announced like it did. What does this do for your decision, whether the PDP are going to accept the election? They are motion to vary the order of the court given on the 3rd of March, which was to enable Article and PDP to assess the beaver, the IRF, the electronic data, the end-to-end, the cloud, 
and everything and to allow Atiku and PDP to scan all the voter material and also electronically to see everything. Having withdrawn that motion, it means that that earlier order granted by the court stands and INEC must obey that order. And the electoral assets, they must obey within seven days to enable Atiku and PDP to file his petition. So when would you have access INEC now has to obey the order of the court. So from tomorrow, we will go to INEC to say, let us have a test. That means they can no longer configure. Don't forget their motion to vary was that they should be allowed to reconfigure all the data because of the governorship election coming up Saturday the 11th. So by refusing this motion, it means INEC cannot configure anything. In other words, the entire INEC data as the way when presidential and national assembly elections were conducted on the 26th of February, remain and they must remain untouched. They must remain unstained and unaffected and unburied. That is the meaning of the ruling today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Sam Mike Ozikome is one of the lawyers for opposition presidential candidate Atiku Abubakar. He was speaking with us from Nigeria's capital, Abuja. The East African community continues to deploy troops in North Kivu province in Democratic Republic of Congo to form a buffer zone in Rushuru and Masisi territories once the M23 rebels withdraw from all the areas they occupy. But many North Kivu residents are contesting the deployment, especially those who have been displaced by the fighting. Zaneb Neti Zaidi has this report from Goma. Since Sunday, Burundian troops have settled in the area of Mubambiro near the city of Sake where they have set up their headquarters. But their presence has been criticized by some, including Belia Bazungu, a young displaced woman of Masisi who is now living in Goma. She says the map drawn for the deployment of East African community forces in towns now occupied by the rebels is not clear and not accurate. She does not understand why the city of Sake appears off the map since it is already in the hands of the National Army. In her view, this means that there could be a hidden agenda, perhaps one that implies collision between EAC forces and the M23 rebels. Members of civil society of Ruchuru territory in Goma are also opposed to the return to the areas that will be considered as a buffer zone. Janti Karabuka is a member of Savel Society. He says soldier from the military camp of Rumangabo, which is controlled by the EAC, are everywhere in the territory of Ruchuru. It is also an area where the rebels are reported to be committing crimes, including the killing of civilians and rape of women. He claims all of the three supports coming from Rwanda passes through Kibumba with the tacit approval of the EAC force. Socio-political analyst Hubert Masomeko comments on the concerns of the displaced.
He says they disperse it, that they will not return home without the support of the National Army, and that those fears are well founded. He also says the people of the region did not approve the use of EAC troops to assure security, and that their failure to bring peace does not inspire confidence. While the latest communique this week from peace talks in Angola speaks of the end of hostilities, clashes continued between the National Army and the M23 in the hills of Karuba on Monday. Amzan Mnikizaidi in Goma for VOA Africa. Tunisia has erupted in racial violence in recent days following President Kaisai's call for urgent measures against large members of illegal migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. As a result, many have been attacked by gangs, fired from their jobs, and kicked out of their homes by landlords. Reporter Elysia Fogman has more from Tunis. President Syed said the flow of sub-Saharan people into the country is a conspiracy to change Tunisia from an Arab country to a more African one. His comments unleashed an unprecedented wave of racial violence. The African Union and neighbouring countries called his remarks racist, a label which he says astonished him. The World Bank suspended its partnership work in Tunisia in protest. The government has rolled back and promised new administrative measures that Syed says will help migrants regulate their immigration status and facilitate leaving Tunisia more easily by dropping penalties for their illegal overstay. However, there is no talk of releasing those arrested, and daily reports of violence against black people continues. Ibrahim is a Nigerian migrant camped outside the grounds of the UN agency, the International Organization for Migration. We had this uh, sudden incident when the president gave a speech that he doesn't need any black migrants in his country, illegal migrants. And unfortunately, we start to see those who are even legal here, as far as you are black, you are embarrassed. So we have to run away from our different homes because by then the police start uh, catching people. They caught my friends. I was a lucky one who went out to uh, bought a uh, bread. On my way coming back, there are a lot of Tunisians who are throwing stones at me. I have to run away. I come to this place. The Union for Ivorians in Tunisia says it has received reports of some 800 people in prison, many without judicial proceedings. According to the Association of African Students in Tunisia, over 1,000 black people have been evicted from their homes. Over 200 of those made homeless are now camped outside the International Organization for Migration looking for answers, including this woman from Sierra Leone who calls herself Ada. I did a housework as a nanny, yes, in here. So since the speech of the president, they sent me out of the house that I should stop work. The president said... He doesn't want any black to work. In fact, you don't need any black in his country, so we should go back to our countries. But going back to my country will be very difficult for me because uh, I don't think uh, there is a good reason for me to go back. I have nothing there, no help, nothing at all. Some of those evicted are pregnant women and mothers with babies. One woman from Sierra Leone, who calls herself Natasha, miscarried as a result of being evicted and beaten by her landlord. We are very suffering. We are outside in front of IOM. No good 
accommodation. We don't even have place to sleep. I was living in a house before they remove out from our house, take everything, beat us, do so so many things to us. Around 12 a.m. in the morning, they remove off our home. So we came here. We don't have nothing. Ladies, we are suffering here. We have pregnant women. As for me, I was pregnant two months because of the problem. They beat me. I I have a miscarriage. So we are really suffering. According to the Tunisian Forum for Economic and Social Rights, there are some 21,000 sub-Saharan immigrants in Tunisia, many without residency status. Meanwhile, the governments of Guinea, Mali, Nigeria and Ivory Coast have begun flying some of their citizens home. For those who remain behind, life is at a standstill, with no hope of getting their jobs back and still afraid to go outside. For them, Tunisia has become an open-air prison. For Voice of America, Africa, I'm Alicia Faltman in Tunis, Tunisia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Butty in Washington. Today is Thursday, March 9th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. head of the Union of Journalists of South Sudan says the media environment in the country is hostile. Patrick Oyert says most journalists in Juba are self-censoring, while others are doing public relations for the government. Oyet says South Sudan government security agents are controlling newspaper contents. He told viewers John Tanza in Juba on Wednesday that the media environment is worse today than in previous years. The situation is uh, not good. One can say that um, maybe because the recent case we've had is only the one of SSBC where journalists are arrested. So for that reason, somebody can argue that maybe the situation is better. But the situation is not any better because if you have national security officials in the printing press, whereby they go through the stories and decide that this story should be out, this one should go, and so on, then definitely people are not even uh, free to write. Are you seeing? So that's, that's one challenge. Another issue is you may see like uh, uh, the papers come out every morning, the journalists are not arrested as I stated earlier, but because the journalists are now fearing to, to write real stories, are you seeing? Self-censorship. Exactly. Like uh, when Pope came here, we saw some roads being tarmacked very fast, and yet the government says there's no money. We needed to question this as journalists. When the members of parliament from the East Africa came here to play some uh, East African games, They were here and the roads were still being painted. And the question we could ask ourselves is that these things are supposed to be done to beautify Juba before the members of parliament could come. Now they have come and the beautification is going on. What what happened? Who delayed where? People cannot ask this. Journalists cannot ask this because you fear uh, that you will be questioned or the story will be removed. So what the journalists in South Sudan are doing now is more of a PR for the government. The government has said this, the president has said this, so-and-so has said this so that you can survive, you see. So the situation is not good, but because people are not being arrested and so on, you think that the situation is good. Okay, then come to the issue of the arrest of the SSBC guys. These people have been in detention. They have never been charged. They don't have a file that you can say that, you know, even as we have a lawyer as, as a union. Have public. you visited them? 
We have tried to visit. We have, we've gone there, but we've not been given access. And uh, even the lawyer has not been given access. Only one among them has uh, had access to the family. Uh, so the rest, they have not even had access. We were hearing something like two uh, released. Is that correct? No. Up to now, we do not have any information that anybody has been released. Apart from the previous three that were released, the other four, we still do not have any information. So there were seven in number and three were released? Yeah, there were seven in number, three were released, four are still in custody. And the ones who were released, did you get a chance to speak to them to understand the nature of their case? No, we, we didn't talk to them intentionally because uh, we know that uh, they are still being monitored and uh, speaking to them or, or trying to meet them would still put them in some kind of danger. So we want to give them as much time as possible, especially the fact that the rest are still in. So we, we don't want to complicate the issue. So we have not met with them. As the world celebrated International Women's Day yesterday Wednesday, many women in Zambia are still marginalized in society. According to a recent gender audit in the country, only 18% of women serve in decision-making roles in both public and private sectors. The situation is the same with NGOs, but some women are making their voices heard. Kathy Short reports for VOA from Lusaka. Out of more than 1,500 registered NGOs in Zambia, only 100 are run by women. Zambia continues to have higher gender inequality than other medium-developed African countries. According to the World Bank, Zambia has the lowest proportion of seats held by women in national parliament in sub-Saharan Africa at just 18%. The regional average is believed to be just under 25%. The low number of female lawmakers in Zambia is said to undermine the quality of the country's democracy. Some women NGO leaders are trying to shake things up. One of them is Juliet Chibuta, executive director of the Zambia National Women's Lobby, a group that advocates for gender equality in Zambia. Chibuta says she's been running the organization for more than 10 years. I think I'm equal to the task and I'm good at what I do. And um, I bring to the table what a man can bring and so... Being like that, I feel that I am recognized in my own right as a leader and also I'm recognized as somebody who can do what the men can do. Political scientist Caroline Katotowe is executive director of the Center for Policy Dialogue, a local NGO that advocates for accountability and transparency among Zambian leaders. Katotowe says she's not afraid to hold lawmakers accountable for their actions. The confidence that I have in my abilities and capabilities, it is what drives me to assert myself as a leader. Secondly, it is knowing that what a man can do, I can do, and sometimes I can do even better. So there is that confidence that is within me, and it is that confidence that actually drives me to break barriers. Chibota is still hopeful her country can achieve gender equality. Zambia is one of the countries which is highly patriarchal and cultural, so we need to ensure that men and women and the society at large all understand that it's important to have both genders involved in everything that is happening, involved in decision-making, in development processes, and in all the governance processes. Like Chibuta, Katotowe is also optimistic Zambia can bridge the gender gap. 
I think it is time that as women, we put ourselves out there. We got into the driver's seat, beat leadership at every other level. Let us assert ourselves as women and participate in equality. In his message marking International Women's Day Wednesday, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said women's exclusion from the digital world has shaved an estimated $1 trillion from the gross domestic product of law and middle-income countries in the last decade, a loss that could grow to $1.5 trillion by 2025 without action. The Secretary General says investing in women uplifts all people communities, and countries. I'm Kathy Short for VOA News in Lusaka, Zambia. Today, March 9, is World Kidney Day. According to the World Health Organization, at least 800 million people suffer from chronic kidney disease worldwide. WHO says cases of the illness are steadily rising, with the condition being among the top 10 killer diseases globally. In Africa, one in five adults are living with kidney disorders, but they do not know they are affected. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Chronic kidney disease is a global public health problem affecting individuals from low- and middle-income countries. With this year's World Kidney Day theme being Kidney Health for All, preparing for the unexpected, supporting the vulnerable, the African region has been left behind as the continent records high prevalence of the illness. An estimated one million people worldwide die from untreated kidney failure each year. Kidney specialist and transplant physician at the renal unit at the Kenyatta National Hospital in Nairobi, John Gigi, says in the event of emergencies, people with kidney diseases are among the most vulnerable due to their ongoing need for consistent coordinated care. He says government should ensure kidney patients access to services. People, wherever they are in the world, have access to good care to ensure good, healthy kidneys. But today or this year's theme, changes a bit more, or in addition to that, talks about I'm looking at things like catastrophes. So we are now talking about preparing for the unexpected. We are looking at what happens when unexpected situations, like, say, accidents, earthquakes, floods, like it's happening in Turkey and Syria, are caused people. We are looking at people with chronic kidney disease as vulnerable population, and people could not access vital uh, services, especially for kidney transplantation. We are now saying that we must be prepared for such events. Kidney care is often lifelong and involves complex treatments, among them weekly dialysis. In Kenya, at least 4 million people are suffering from chronic kidney disease, with 10% of those affected unable to afford dialysis. Ali Kapusia is a senior nephrology nurse in Kenya. He says children are also at risk of suffering from kidney diseases due to abuse of over-the-counter drugs. If you have diabetes, make sure you have a nephrologist in place. Children in school, this, this is a very serious thing. This is our future. I mean, the future is getting threatened, our children. So one thing that is important is that most of this condition for children happen as a result of um, over-the-counter medication, treatment over-the-counter. Most, most, uh, most medications are nephrotoxic, meaning they are toxic to the kidney. So if you continue taking it, you're destroying your, your kidney. March is National Kidney Month and March 9th is the World Kidney Day, part of global campaign to improve care and reduce the frequency and impacts of kidney disease worldwide. According to WHO, 90% of people with stage 3 chronic kidney disease do not know they have the condition. 
Gigi calls on Kenyans to embrace regular screening of the illness. So I would invite everyone to come to Kenyatta National Hospital grounds. On this day, we are going to screen people for chronic kidney diseases. We're going to look at people who are diabetics, uh, check out their sugars, check out tune and all that. Those who will be found who have chronic kidney disease will be managed appropriately. According to the World Health Organization, some of the factors that may increase the risk of chronic kidney disease include diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, smoking and obesity. WHO has also linked high sodium intake to the kidney disease. However, depending on the underlying causes, some types of the illness can be successfully treated. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. And that's it for this Thursday, March 9th edition of Daybreak Africa. I am James Botti in Washington saying, have a great day and please be safe whatever you do. Season 3 of the Basketball Africa League is here. Starting off in Dakar from March 11th to March 21st for the Sahara Conference, then heading to Cairo from April 26th to May 6th for the Nile Conference, and the excitement continues to build in the finals in Kigali from May 21st to May 27th. Tune in and follow the BAL starting this Saturday on the